you know, it, you may not think you want to be a business lawyer, but think about whether you might want to be an environmental lawyer. Are you going to have to do complex agreements? You are actually a lot of those things when you sign up, remediate a site, you're going to have to do a thing. I, I'm going to do family law. I'm interested in family law. I don't do contracts. Well, <laughs> you will do contracts because divorce agreements, separation agreements, child custody agreements, all involve contracts. Um, uh, oh, I'm doing criminal law. Well, what do you think plea agreements are? What do you think sentencing agreements are? So the reality is there's very, this is one area of the law where you really just can't escape it if you're gonna be a lawyer, I think. I mean, because people say the criminal, you know, it just isn't that way. That is, I've seen many people mess up cases on the criminal side of things because they're actually not careful about how they document a sentence or something like that. It matters very much to people and in every area of civil law. And so I have often thought there should be a complex agreement that can be different tracks but there's a tension that you see in many of your classes, right? And I think I wanna put Avery in a kind of broader context, me too, so people understand is this tension between doing situational justice or equity, right? And having dependable rules. And there's always this temptation in the contracting thing and it'll get to the front, the contracting thing gets at this in a big way, which is, oh, can we really stick, you know, Rick with his bargain when he signed something stupid, right? This couldn't have been what they meant or how do they do that, right? And I think the, the problem with that is, and, and especially then Lee comes in and says, well, this is what Rick and I really meant. Rick says, no, 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 I mean that, we had all these conversations. The written agreement doesn't really reflect what we do. Well, you know, how do you know who's telling the truth? And one of the things you have when people sign a piece of paper and they're presumed to be sentient and capable of bargaining for themselves, right? We're not talking about a credit card contract or the 47, like there's 47 people on this call. Um, given your generation, you probably have even more of these than the, the oldsters, you know, people who literally are not actually young enough to be the people that they're talking about at progressive ads were the actual parents or whatever you know, is all those contracts you signed just because you wanted to get a new video game or you wanted to get a new platform, right? You know, we're not talking about those adhesion contracts. That's a whole different thing, right? We're talking about things that are more bespoke. When you buy a home, when, you know, you buy, uh, when, and certainly when two companies decide to engage in a sales agreement, right? But there's this tension between, do we hold people to the written word or do we, allow situational equitable principles to come in and have people talk about the overall context, right? You've probably heard about parole evidence, the parole without an E, very confusing in the law to have parole with an E and parole without an E. But, you know, that's a whole bar thing too, right? You've talked about, which is to what extent do we want to bring in all this stuff and then have contracts turn on that or to hold people to the letter? And what I say is, I think in terms of the, the farther you get away from adhesion contracts, the more inequitable it arguably becomes to allow situational equity to come into play. Why? Because you've got to think about the overall benefit to cost ratio of contracts. And you have to also think about how likely it is that judges are always going to get it right 
about what people are saying about what they said they meant, as opposed to reading what they both signed and objectively interpreting it, right? And so if you have too much situational equity, no one can really rely on the written agreement. That means that there's going to be barriers to people arguably doing transactions, which could be good for them both. You're going to have excessive litigation costs. And I would actually say the error rate will go up because judges, I know some judges, and I, I mean, some of them are friends of mine, and they can see into people's souls like W could see into Putin's. And they're very good about reading everybody. I don't feel that way. I was taught in my religious tradition, there's only one thing that knows everything and it ain't a human being <laughs> and certainly ain't me. But I do think that I'm better at if both Lee and Rick signed an agreement and they both had lawyers and bargaining power and no one was making them do it. I do think it gives me a tether to reality to rely on those written words and to be very cautious about um, bringing in considerations that are more arguable, like oral testimony about what was said or other things. So let's put it in the context of Avery, I mean, to sort of where we come at, right, students. So there's always been this odd relationship, students, between tort law, so-called fraud, right? The idea that someone made a statement that was false and with some level or no level of scienter, but that arguably led somebody to enter into a contract, right? And in many states, that's a tort. There are some states that treat it as an aspect or an adjunct to contract law, but in most states, I think it's, it's seen as a tort. That stands along a contract, like you see in Avery, where there are representations and warranties, right? Where people actually put down in writing in the contract certain statements about you know, the world. And the way I look at it, don't be afraid to ask your professor about things like what is a representation and warranty? What is a covenant? What is a condition? I've had people write exams. Rick and I talked together, Lee and I talked together with Eric. You know, like they'll write about breach of condition. Well, breach of condition means you should see an OBGYN very quickly, get to the hospital. There's no such thing as a breach of a condition. Now I'll give you soon. A representation and warranty is basically a statement Imagine if you're a seller in this Avery thing, it's a statement about the what you're selling, right? That the financial statements are accurate and other things like that. And so it's a representation you make about what, the, uh, the, the what you're selling. The covenants tend to be things like promises by the seller, we're going to look at the seller side, to keep the what as described in the reps and warranties as, as same as possible to what it was at signing between then and closing, right? So you won't do anything out of the ordinary course of business, right? Trying to keep, run the company basically in the same way so that it will be in the condition at closing that's the same as it was at the time you signed up the, the contract in the first place. And so you have various covenants of that kind that tend to preserve the you know how it's trapped then what are the conditions that's when you get to closing like the measuring rod in many ways me too is how different can the company be at the time of closing between how it was defined by the reps and warranties at signing 
And what is the tolerance of variation where the seller might get to, the buyer might get to walk because there's been a change. And so these things work together. Now, what you see in Avery is this idea that I'm a seller. I don't want, I have, imagine in a deal where, you know, you've got environmental considerations, you've got employee considerations, you've got others. You've probably heard about due diligence. There are many people in an M&A transaction, and Rick and Lee will talk about, it. there are many people speaking. There are many questions asked. There are many conversations. You won't be able to monitor all of them. You will try to do. There will be documents changing hands. There will be drafts of documents that have changed hands. There will be iterations of things that are in data rooms. Part of what you're saying as a seller is, I don't want to be responsible for everything that's said. I will be responsible for certain things that are foundational to the deal. And so the whole idea of the non-reliance clause and thing was, to avoid having fraud claims, the ability to get out of a deal over something that you weren't even sure was said. And the easiest way is to say this, like we have 28 reps and warranties. The seller stands behind them and says, I'm representing and warranting this. And if one of those is false, and you, you say you have a very strong bring down me to where if any of those is false, was false at, signing or is not true at closing, you can walk away. So you get to walk away for any of those reasons. But you can't get out of the deal over something that's not set forth. You can't argue that Leo said X and X is not in those reps and warranties. And so what Avery at a bottom line said is if you have a provision in the contract that says that the buyer acknowledges that the only statements that it's relying upon, the only information is statements are the ones in the reps and warranties in the agreement, then that can circumscribe the basis for any future suit, both under the contract and in fraud law. Because you're making a promise that you didn't rely on anything except those 28. And so, that you, and that deals with this sort of epistemological uncertainty, right? About who's telling the truth, who's doing that. But then there's the question of once you've restricted that, and this was a central issue in Avery is, can you limit that? If you put a provision in the contract that for a breach, assume you close, right? This is post-closing. So you didn't find out about a falsity until after you close. The contract says that the limitation for any breach of rep and warranty is you know, $20 million. Can that hold if the buyer alleges you engaged in fraud? And what I did, and Matt, you'll, I think you may remember, we talked about this. One of Matt's colleagues, who's a uh, friend, is Dean. I think he's still, is he still Dean Gordon? Yeah, yeah, he's still going. Well, if you notice, students, I sort of surveyed Anglo-American law here, right? And I took on this limitation thing. I took about as I took as a, a more aggressive pro-contractarian view than anybody ever had, because if you look at the restatement, um, the restatement says you can not exculpate even reckless misstatements, right? 
if it, if it's a reckless misstatement of fact, there cannot be a contractual cap on on liability. I reviewed the law and I reviewed Delaware public policy, and that's when I came essentially to the knowing the lie standard, which is that public policy would not allow a cap on liability as to a false statement made with scienter, essentially the difference between a lie and uh, an innocent misstatement or even a reckless misstatement. And I grounded that in Delaware public policy. What was funny was Gordon and my friend, Steve Bainbridge, Matt, both friends of mine, um, wrote blog posts that Strine had cut back on uh, contractual freedom. And I said, students, it's interesting how you could cut back on a freedom that never existed and that you could somehow, but it also shows law and economics professors are often light on the ampersand, what comes before the ampersand <laughs> law. And I, I said to them, how could I cut back on what never existed, right? I mean, my hair, I did used to have a hairline and, it, and God, you know, cut back on what it did exist. Um, but the, in this case, there was no there there ever. There was no Oakland. But I think what this case is, and I'll relate it to the statistics, the students, if you think about it, it's the balance being struck between integrity, the need for some basic rules of integrity, and the reliability of the written word. And what it comes down to is if you can def that you can define the basis for what you can get sued for and fraud so that you know if you look at the, if you've got it on all the boxes that all the fraudulent misstatements are listed in the boxes. That's what you can rely upon. If any of them are false, but not for because of a lie, but just because they're false, you can cap the liability to that if you're the, the seller so that um, you can allocate responsibility essentially for you know, errors in judgment, errors in, in speech in those things and cap that to a monetary amount. But what public policy prohibits is capping responsibility for that confined group of statements in the contract for, for misstatements of fact that cause harm and that people relied upon and that were in fact lies. And so if you think, I think about the evolution of architecture this century, part of what you're dealing with, Matt, I think was originally, it wasn't really sure what the non-reliance clause were, like how reliable that was, me too, and that. You know, so students from the first instance, it wasn't really sure that you could even confine the statements on which people could sue. People got more comfortable with that. But there were instances like Avery itself that showed that the, the caps were not necessarily inadequate. They were efficient, but with an exception. The fraud exception then, again, it's very important to look at choice of law students and, and choice of forum in these things. And I also wrote some decisions. One of the things that this is important about is not is the choice of law and cohering the fraud choice of law with the contract choice of law, because I would tell me too and Matt, that was not always the case. You know what I mean? And you could have a separate tort uh, with a different state. Fraud is also not a self-defining term. It comes to mind with a scienter basis and that's right. I mean, that's the original. When you think about fraud, you are kind of coming, somebody defrauded me, you're thinking about a lie. But over time, there's been much more expansion of the concept of misrepresentation to cover things like negligent misrepresentation, so-called equi equitable fraud, which is essentially 
a statement by a fiduciary. And so I think part of this fraud exception also came with the need me to to define the state of mind of the statement more precisely. And then students, there's also this emergence of an insurance product here, and I don't know, Rick and Lee and, 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 and your professors would know a lot more about this than me, but insurance products were being developed to essentially insure against the risk of misstatements, but I think primarily designed to cover the indemnity bucket, those statements that were really within the basket of say 20, you know, whatever the, the basket level was and not get into a fight about fraud. And so I think what's developed is to have a strong non-reliance clause that you can insist on if you're um, a seller, um, an indemnity basket for non-scienter-based uh, you know, breaches of reps and warranties that are found out, but with a fraud exception with a scienter definition that allows for recovery if you can prove you know, essentially an intentional misstatement that caused harm. That, that's at least my sense. And, and what happens, students, and it bothers Rick and Lee and I a lot, is once something becomes market, it's hard to argue against unless you have a lot of leverage or a patient client. A lot of times, clients aren't willing to exercise their leverage because CEOs get in what we call deal heat. I mean, they, they really want to close. And one of the, the roles of the lawyer here is to use the contract to protect them against uh, risk, but that requires them to exercise patience and to exert leverage. And if they're told, if you have to honestly tell them, like if Lee tells the CEO, CEO says, I keep asking, well, Lee, is what they're asking for market? I mean, is this pretty standard? And Lee has to say, yes, but it's not in our interest and you have leverage and you can get better in the market. Well, I might say, well, if it's market, if they're just asking where it's market, I want to get this deal done, right? And so it's often a thing, as much a thing on your own side of the table. And so we're not urging you, we urge you to represent your client situationally, to use your leverage. If anybody ever says to you, I've never given a deal, I've never done that in my career, say, who cares what you've done? You've never represented a client with so little leverage. And, and if your client doesn't want to do the deal, that's fine, but I don't really want to hear about your history you know, or who, who turned you down to the prom in high school or whatever your inadequacies you're bringing to the table, we're negotiating this deal. But as a matter of reality, so-called market, you know, Matt and me too, you know, it does provide a kind of, there's a kind of presumption in its favor and given business people's impatience, um, it often plays more of a role than it should. And here's another dirty little secret students. A lot of times the price is struck and then you work backwards to through this stuff, which makes that even more difficult. So that's some you know context. I'm happy student, but I wanted to give it. Just keep in mind that basic tension between the reliability of the written word and situational equity, and just realize that when human beings do situational equity based on after the fact oral testimony about oral statements, there's actually the risk that they're buying the wrong story and that they're actually relieving a party that knew what it was doing in writing of the bargain it made because the court is subject to error too. Um, it's not easy to tell necessarily who's telling the truth. Bargaining is bargaining. And so there will often be ambiguous 
um, you know, parole evidence because that's paggling is about. And I think Lee and Rick will also tell you that when you bargain against market, what people also do is try to, you know, to be honest, create ambiguity when they have a weak position, which is introduce something in the, in the contract, Matt and me too, that may not be clear your, your way, but opens the door to a litigable issue to give you some leverage to get a better settlement or open the door to parole evidence. And so there's that sort of tactical thing as well that, that comes in. Um, and that's just the real world and it's part of the art of the lawyer. 